0: Grady, easy does it, easy does it. Now we get to the moment of truth, the ultimate. Now you hit pay dirt, kid. You get whatever you want. What do you mean, whatever I want? Well, tell me, what is it you want more than anything else in the earth? This is the moment, this is it. What is it you want, Mr. Grady? Name it, it's yours. What do I want? What do I want? I want to be the biggest. Hear me? Yeah, that's what I want. I want to be the biggest. I want to be big!
1: And welcome to Strange Highways. I am Paul. And hey, guys, it's Terry here. I don't know why I was trying to sound intimidating. Like I'm Paul, and that's Terry, and you owe us some money. That's not what I meant by that. Um, but yeah, welcome, to Strange Highways. I always forget to to kind of give our what what we're all about. Um, like I know we're five seasons in, but this is the podcast where we watch The Twilight Zone in sequence. So if you guys haven't figured that out by now, um, just look backwards. You'll be like, why do the numbers keep going up? That's why. But yes. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed our discussion about a kind of a stopwatch. Uh, it was kind of an okay episode. Um, may we never think about McNulty again, unfortunately. Um, but we have, we have a, um, another one man show in a lot of ways. Uh, and this one, literally with this episode, the last night of a jockey season five, episode five. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if we have any other banter before we get into it have anything you want to throw out before we start talking about this, uh, this large cast
2: no and i i mean like i feel like if we could pull, pull off the band-aid as quickly as possible we could move on to hopefully some better episodes I'm, i know i'm giving the ghost oh a wow bit, but...
1: oh there's some controversy here okay <laughs> look at that um the last night of a podcast let's call <laughs> <No. laughs> um all right so yeah the, the season five episode five the last night of a jockey Um, uh, the air date, October 25th, 1963, number one film, the VIPs. We had talked about that, that, that movie earlier in a previous episode, one of those big star studded, like got to bring all the people in has Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Chamberlain and Orson Welles. Um, number one song, sugar shack by Jimmy Gilmer and the fireballs. Um, so, uh, day and date information couldn't find anything for, uh, for the 25th, but the 26th. Uh, this this is just interesting to me so uh, two things I, uh, Saturday uh, the 26th, for the first time it was possible for a uh, nuclear weapon to be carried by a missile capable of reaching any target on Earth. Um, so at 1114 a.m the new Polaris A3 missile was successfully fired from a submarine submerged 50 below 50 feet below the ocean uh, near Cape, Cape Canaveral. Um, after being fired, The unarmed uh, warhead splashed down in a target area, 2,300 miles away. Uh, No point of land is more than 1,800 miles uh, from a sea coast. Um, So, like, that's that. Basically, at this point, the U.S. on the 26th in 1963 in October had the capability of launching a a world-ending weapon from any like to reach any point on the earth. So that's that's a happy story, right?
2: Oh yeah. You know, cause why not? You know, the advancements of, uh, weapons. Cool. Yeah.
1: So the second so thing, I mean, from afar. yeah, it's just like the U S is like, Hey guys, you know, we may not be the nicest people, but don't say anything mean to us now. You know? <laughs> uh, I shouldn't laugh about that. Uh, but you know what? Hey, the good news is we, we got better as people after that. Right. There's never been a problem since. Um, so, second second thing that happened that day, Soviet Prime Minister uh, Nikita Khrushchev announced um, through the publication of an interview in a government newspaper that I cannot pronounce the name of, but their own, their own government newspaper, so take that with a grain of salt, that the Soviets were not going to compete with the United States in the race to put the first man on the moon. He said, at the present time, we do not plan flights of uh, cosmonauts to the moon. I have read a report that the Americans wish to land on the moon by 1970. Well, let's wish them success. <laughs> they're like we got we got Yuri Gagarin up there first, so we got somebody up there, but we're not gonna we're not gonna fight you to put somebody on the moon. Have fun, congrats.
2: They probably realized that they had to put more money into weapons because of what Just the Americans happened. did with this uh, yeah. this more recent missile thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, and they looked over and they're like France is launching cats in the space. Like it's getting a little crowded up there, you know. So. Yeah, so that's what I got uh, for day and date. So um, it's just not to to go too far with this, but like that feels like that October 26, 63 is a very important date to know that we as humanity reached the point in which we had the capability of pressing a button and destroying a target at any like somewhere else on the earth. And this is the, the going forward. That's the world we lived in. That seems pretty, pretty big to me. Um just like um there was a point in the 70s where um there was literally a day and an hour in which computers then knew more than man. Like that stuff kind of blows my mind. Skynet, man. Skynet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah, both of those, right? The, the, these two things aren't, aren't aren't unrelated, right? So um no fate but what we make. So all right, um yeah, let's uh let's let's get, let's get into this uh, uh cast and crew.
2: Okay. Yeah. So our director on is a a returning uh, uh, Joseph Newman. Uh, This is the second of four episodes that he will have done for this season. Uh, He did in praise of Pip. So uh, uh, I'm not sure how much more you want to go into his stuff because I didn't really know any of his material outside of the twilight zone
1: yeah and i think we kind of we talked about that already um so but we both liked the direction of Impraise of pip and i will say that there are some some interesting camera movements in this episode and some uh, interesting staging that i will attribute to mr newman yeah that's a good
2: call um and then next our writer returning also is uh rod serling so he's come back to do another episode uh and uh yeah i we we are the fanboys. We talk about him often, so I'm not sure how much more we can add on to the, the love for Mr. Serling.
1: Do you so. think he came back from that four week vacation and then hammered this one out after uh, being out the door for a, a kind of a stopwatch?
2: I you know, honestly, I kinda think so. Like I think that he just came back, and he was on autopilot and <laughs> he this one house.
1: <laughs> oh, that's that's sad. So, uh we'll we'll talk more about about that at the end of the episode. I have a little story about it. Uh, no pun intended. Uh so so um what who do we have in our cast?
2: All right, so uh leading off our cast here, <laughs> we <we've> got <laughs> we got Mr. Mickey Rooney. Mickey Rooney. Ugh. Um I have seen uh Mr. Rooney in a ton of different television appearances uh growing up in that I had never really known him to be a serious actor. He just seemed to be the guy who would come into like a comedy. Um, like he, he was on a episode of, uh, golden girls. And I remember him from that. And he's just, I don't know. He's just kind of a dick every time you see him in something.
1: <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. I mean, you're not wrong about that. It's kind of, you know, that like to, and to also kind of know from his personal life, he was, kind of a dick. Uh, but, so I'll say this. I mean, obviously he's one of those guys that um, he he grew up in the industry, right? So I, I was looking a little bit at his information. I won't go into his full career because it did span quite a while. Um, his mother saw an advertisement for a child to play the role of Mickey McGuire in a series of short films. Rooney got that role and became Mickey for 78 of the films uh, running from 27 to 36. So he was the, like a young, young child actor that came up in the time of silent film. And he always kind of, and he, he was actually um, from, what was it? Uh, let's see here. Um, in the, the 30s to 40s, he was actually one of the biggest box office draws. So he he was pretty good. But then once he kind of like stopped being a child actor, unfortunately his height really limited his ability to take on roles in terms of what, people would cast him in. So there was a lot of times that he ended up doing a lot of like more comedic work. Um, And I think, uh, and and you and I will talk about this episode. Uh, I, you know, you would, you would carry a chip on your shoulder like that. And you can see that since Sterling wrote this episode specifically for Rooney, you know, there's like, uh, however you feel by his performance, he really leaned into this. So I'll give him that. The one thing I want to, I'm sorry, go ahead, please.
2: Uh, it's, it's, I, I, I believe that wholeheartedly. He, he was very good in, in this episode. Um, and it was just, uh, another side of his, uh, acting chops that I had never seen before. So it was, it was actually kind of, uh, surprising for me to see him in this kind of
1: role. It, well, I'd also, I'd throw it out, um, to be similar, but not quite in the season three episode, a game of pool where we see Jonathan Winters playing a serious role where we, we, people wouldn't normally associate with him being a comedic actor. Right. So there's times where you get to see, you know, you get to see people kind of like stretching. So, um, but what I'll say, the one thing I thought that was interesting that I I found in his, uh, his Wikipedia page is that he um, in like the twenties and going in a little bit further at during that time, he also briefly voiced a character called Oswald, the lucky Rabbit. Have you heard of this character, Terry? Because if not, I'm going to blow your mind. Uh,
2: You know, fortunately for you and the audience, uh, I have not heard of this. So please let me know.
1: (laughs) So Oswald the Lucky Rabbit was a cartoon character created in 27 by Walt Disney and Ub Iwerks. Uh, That's the, the guy's name, Ub Iwerks. It was for Universal Pictures. Uh, and here I should, I, if you look up Oswald, the lucky rabbit, you're going to be like, he looks awful familiar. Uh, cause he has rabbit ears and not mouse ears. Uh, he started several animated short films from 27 to 38. Uh, and then a lot of those were produced at the Walt Disney studio. When that studio was removed from, um, universal pictures, Oswald was removed from it as well. Uh, so then at that point, um, Walt Disney would then go on with Ub I works and create Mickey mouse. So Oswald Lucky Rabbit's kind of like the precursor to Mickey Mouse. And you don't hear about it and you don't hear about Ub Iwerks much because Disney's that kind of guy that would go out of his way to kind of um downplay parts of history to elevate um his own creations and outputs. So there you go.
2: That's really interesting. I um I do recognize the character now that I've looked up the the pictures and out because I think that they still have um the, the cart, the old cartoons on uh Disney plus.
1: Well, they do now. So uh, th- that's another thing I-, I was reading about this. Uh, and so in 2003, uh, Buena Vista games, which was, uh, owned by Disney, uh, wanted to do an Oswald themed, uh, video game. So then Bob Iger, uh, needed to get the rights back. So the Walt Disney company acquired the, the rights of Oswald, uh, from, um, was it from NBC universal, which basically the, how it worked out was, they got the rights, but then they were able to lend the services of Al Michaels to be the play by play announcer for Sunday night football. So they got an animated rabbit and NBC got Al Michaels.
2: That's a, okay. That's a cool trade.
1: (laughs) Right. Do you believe in miracles of trading a guy for a cartoon? I don't know, but um, Oswald actually, there was a game in 2010 that was put out on the week called Epic Mickey. So that, so uh, Oswald kind of came back. Um, because the whole story there was dealing with Oswald being forgotten and it was a little bit of a, more of a, like a, had a little bit of a darker tone, like not like, you know, like not horrific, like, you know, Bambi getting her parents shot tone, but Oswald has kind of, now that it's, he, he's back under the Disney umbrella, like they're like, Oh, we could make money off this guy too. And you know, Disney would be looking up smiling at a way that the creation he downplayed to start Mickey is now making money for him as well. so,
2: Oh, oh, yeah. Of course, Disney uh, will never uh, shy away from making more money.
1: <laughs> yeah. So there we go. So uh, Mickey Rooney did uh, – vo- he wasn't the only one to voice um, uh, uh, Oswald, but he, he did it in 1931. So I just thought that was worthy of note because of his long career. And I just wanted to talk about the oddity that was Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Nice. Uh,
2: yeah. The other uh, fun fact that I found out about Mr. Rooney – is uh he did the voice of Santa Claus in uh Santa Claus is coming to town.
1: Oh the um oh the what's the, the rankin um weird like what's it called Play Nation stop- thing? Yeah, yeah. Uh rankin- oh shit. What's the name of that company? They did all the holiday specials, right? Rankin' Bass, is that it? That uh, sounds familiar. Yeah, was it Rankin Bass that did um yeah, they did the stop motion stuff. So I think they did the animated Christmas stuff. Yeah, Christmas classics. You're right. So, okay, I didn't know he was the voice of Santa. Okay.
2: Yeah, that wild, right? I I had no clue. Um, And uh, to get more Christmas out of the dude, uh, he was in Silent Night, Deadly Night, part five. I had no idea that they made five of those films.
1: (laughs) Is it just a clips clips (laughs) package of the first four films? Because I know the second one's a clips package of the second film. So I'm just wondering if they just keep adding more and more clips and just roll it forward. It's probably, you know,
2: they probably just had some script lying around and then they just had to put, a title on it to make money and probably had nothing to do with anything at all. Cause I, I don't know, like the silent night, deadly night, uh, franchise, not really one that I gravitate towards for Christmas movies, but Hey, everybody's got their own little vice, right?
1: I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Like, so with Mickey Rudy though, like he was even in, like towards the end of uh, his career and life, he was in the, um, the first, uh, ninth museum film. It was him, Dick Van Dyke. And I forget who the other person was, but they, he actually, he played like, he played like a sourpuss that was like always itching to fight. And it was his, his brief role was funny. So like the guy knows comedy. He, you know, he knew how he knew, he knew what he was good at, but he did have range. It's just that I feel like unfortunately, and this ties in directly in this episode and, um, his genetics betrayed him and he never got like, like you, usually a lot of Hollywood people, like when you see them, they're not as tall as you think they are because you know, Hollywood, but he just, he never got past a certain point and he just never got cast in certain roles because of that. And that's unfortunate.
2: You know, I, I wonder if it was ever that difficult for like Danny DeVito. Cause Danny DeVito being a shorter dude as well, um, I don't think he's ever had that kind of difficulty to get roles. I mean, like he did movies like Hoffa. He was in one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And it's like, he's always been a, uh, like an a plus kind of, um, actor. I wonder what, like, it really was. It was difficult for Mr. Rooney to well, get those type of roles. A
1: Different time. There was less, the small, like, uh, less numbers of studios. Like, you know, one, like being typecast was way harder to break out of. I would imagine then, right? Especially, I don't know, like he was growing up, especially he was probably part, still part of the studio system where he would sign to do a certain number of pictures for a studio and he would have to take the work that was given. So unless somebody believed that he could draw outside of what was already making the money, he never got that shot.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I know that he did, um, a playhouse 90 episode. Um, and I I wonder if that was like, Uh, Rod Serling's like, um, reasoning for him being in this episode and really drawing out a different, uh, type of character from, from Mickey Rooney.
1: Well, actually, now that you say that I'll, I'll drop that bit of knowledge right now. So that's funny that you, you mentioned Playhouse 90. So let me find that information. You caught me off guard here. Uh, where was it? Um, so this was not the first time Mickey Rooney carried a one man performance throughout an entire television drama, an earlier one man performance by Rooney and Eddie, an episode of, um, uh, was it, um, Alcoa Goodyear theater? So not playoffs 90, uh, earned him an Emmy nomination in 58. Uh, Rooney had portrayed a bookie desperately trying to raise money to pay off debts. So he would not be killed. Um, that would be later remade into a film called uncut gems. Just kidding. That's not true. um, um <laughs> Uh, William Frong, uh, who received a Screen Produ- uh, Producers Guild Award for producing Eddie, was also the producer of um, of this teleplay. So, the producer of this episode was this guy named William Frong. Who um, you can see why there there were some some forces at play that this producer's like, I know Rooney can carry uh, an, an episode by himself, and we both got critical acclaim last time, so why not do it?
2: That's fascinating. Yeah, I'm glad that they uh, they gave him a shot uh, to play a different type of role again. Like, like I was saying, it just seemed every time I had seen uh, Mickey Rooney, it's like it was always the comedy. Yeah. So when when you saw him did doing this really serious role, I was just like floored by it because I f- first of all didn't expect it, and second of all, I thought he nailed it. So it's like this—he really was a lot more versatile than people gave him credit for.
1: Yeah, and so and then I'll also drop a little bit of knowledge here because, I mean, this is our cast and crew and this is our cast, right? So, uh, Sterling yeah. was a, a good and personal friend of Mickey Rooney, uh, and the two knew each other um, when Rooney w- played the role of Sammy Hogarth and Sterling scripted the comedian um, that was uh, dramatized on Playhouse 90, which is what you were talking about. Months before the, this episode was filmed in March 63, uh, Sterling was instrumental in arranging for Rooney to perform um, an act on stage at a dinner host um, that was honoring Steve Allen. So then while that was going on, he actually reached out to, um, to Rooney and then after seeing his, um, his one man, um, performance on the Alcoa Goodyear theater, Sterling was like, I, I write, I'm writing this teleplay for you. I need to, you know, you should do this. So there was a lot of, um, like friendship and professional goodwill that went into getting this episode lined up.
2: Cool. I'm glad that there, there was a, a little bit of that chemistry for working with Rod and doing other projects and getting him into this. Um, yeah, it's really interesting.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, look at us being all smartphone shit. So, all right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what we got for, uh, for cast, uh, and crew. Um, Robert McCord played the telephone in this. That's not true. I just want to like, (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> just wanted to try to sneak in some more Robert McCord. Um, so no, that's it. That it's that, Mickey Rooney playing a dual role. We'll talk a little bit more about this. This is going to be a tough one for everybody. For not, not a tough one for everybody, a tough one for us to talk about with everybody listening, just because it's a it's a it's a different episode. It's uh, different in uh, it's set up and it's it's much more character um, dialogue driven than it is necessarily plot. So this is going to be a weird one to talk about. But uh, with that being said, let's let Mr. Shirley take it away, and then we'll dig into The Last Night of a Jockey.
0: The name is Grady, five feet short in stockings and boots, a slightly distorted offshoot of a good breed of humans who race horses. He happens to be one of the rotten apples, bruised and yellowed by dealing in dirt. A short man with a short memory who's forgotten that he's worked for the sport of kings, and help turn it into a cesspool used and misused by the two-legged animals who've hung around sporting events since the days of the Coliseum. So this is Grady on his last night as a jockey. Behind him are Hialeah, Hollywood Park, and Saratoga. Rounding the far turn and coming up fast on the rail is the Twilight Zone.
1: I should also note, and Terry, you're going to laugh at this, uh, the stock music that was being used in this episode, which is quite effective, are from two other episodes of the twilight zone, the big tall wish and the lonely.
0: Hmm.
1: Okay. But just think about those episode titles in the music and the, the, the context of this episode, like it was, they were used on purpose, but it's almost like someone was some, someone was pulling something here.
2: Yeah. That's a, that's a good call. I didn't really even think (laughs) about that. Um, (laughs) hmm.
1: Yeah. So, all right. Um, where where do we like? I mean, the the plot is it's it's thin, but it's not it's not without merit. I I don't know. Where where do you want to start with this?
2: Uh, I think we just really have to dive into who is Grady and why is he so pissed off at the world. <laughs> so, yeah. I, Mr. Grady is a um, he is a jockey, uh, and you can see from him reading newspapers that are scattered around his very small uh, apartment that um, that he had gotten suspended because of some kind of um, doping or something like that with the horse. And like basically the um, the, the races were rigged and it kind of led back to him. And this is not the first time that he's been suspended for uh, illegal actions in the game.
1: Yeah. And so like, I want to point out though that I did like at the beginning of this, because the the whole thing takes place in this one uh, apartment. And at the beginning you have this, um, it's not a true bird's eye view, but it's a top down look at the apartment and the camera kind of slowly moves in and it, and it pushes in on the newspapers on the ground and he throws one more down. He sees headlines. Um, and so it's effective to me because one, you get the whole scene 2 um, you're already looking down on this small man and then, then that the attention's being drawn to the newspapers. I thought that was a really cool beginning to this episode.
2: Yeah. It gives us our, our plot, uh, pretty quick. And, um, we understand a lot more about who Grady is without having other characters around him to, uh, I basically lose the fact that he's a one man show right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, like the phone rings and it's a reporter trying to get a quote from him, and he just he he like I wrote in my notes here is like, man, Mickey Rooney seems very capable of going from zero to sixty and like and like pissed off in two seconds. I'm like, that's probably not acting. <laughs> like he's really good at being like, huh? You think this is funny? Like I'm sure Joe Pesci's like, I need to learn from this guy when I do Goodfellas.
2: There you go. Yeah, that's a good call. <laughs> I and I love that he literally pulls like every insulting name that he can call him on on televised, uh, tell like a, a show like that that's televised because he calls him like Fink and he calls him a a rat and he calls him like he, like all these different names in his very brief phone call. It's like, dude, you're pissed, and <laughs> I guess I would be as well if this guy who just wrote a kind of a shitty article about him and, uh, you know, uh, paints him in a, in such an image of him being a cheater and ruin, ruining his career that much more. I, I don't, I can't imagine Grady being all too excited to hear from him.
1: Yeah. I mean, especially whenever as much as he's adamant that he was not part of horse doping or, you know, like fixing races or whatever, you know, he Grady, you get the feeling of the Grady is this guy that, when he's riding high, like it doesn't matter what anybody says to him, but the moment things like don't go his way, he's quick to point out why everything went wrong and it's everybody else's fault but his own. Um and it's you know, you can you get that from him pretty quickly. Um, so um so we 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 see him here like um sweaty in this room. Seeing better days, he's being banned from uh, horse racing. That's when we get Sterling's opening. A really good opening. I liked Sterling's writing for this opening. Like he he really, um, of course he wrote this specifically for Rooney, but um, aside from the fact that he's like really like hammering that um, that that Grady's a small man, uh, I thought this was like, I thought that the opening was really well done. I, I really liked his intro. I just, I don't know where he would have actually come into the episode because I, I still think it would have been funny to have him come over and like Pat and Mickey Rooney on the head and then give like the intro, that's probably a little wrong, but it would have been funny.
2: Yeah, I do. I mean, it's a small apartment, so I don't think there really could have been a, a, a good spot for him to. That's true. Come in. And- <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. He's creative enough. I think he could have done like, like a shot outside the window or something or <laughs> yeah. came out of the closet.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He would have walked out wearing, trying to wear like the jockey pants or whatever. I'm like, Ugh, you know, but anyway, um, so, uh, uh, so then at this point we get like uh Grady, um, you know, struggling with the, with the reality that he's been banned from horse racing, but then it takes a turn because we hear another voice. Uh, it's like, how goes it Mr. Grady? And he, um, you, know, you you realize that he's hearing this voice and this voice is kind of taunting him um, and good on Rooney because like the voice is himself as well. And we'll see that in reflections and things later. Um, he's really good at like, you know, th- just acting in the scene by himself because there's a bit too. He's like, he's like, how do you like it in here? And he starts to smack in his face like hard, like he's not, he's not pulling like his punches, like, so to speak. And it's like, this is somebody who's on the edge. And that I think of all the bits in this episode, for whatever reason, this person by themselves trying to smack a voice out of their head. I feel like that hits me now. No pun intended more in 2020 than it may have been in 63 when it aired.
2: Yeah. It seems like a really method. Uh, um, like role that he pulled here. So I wonder what his, uh, his, um, uh, influence was to be this kind of character in it, because he, he definitely could have been a little bit more reserved in trying to play this role, but he, he does play like manic really well in this episode.
1: Yeah. So then, uh, yeah, so you get the whole thing where this, this other, this voice, is like reminding him of his past failures and like the things he's done. And there's a little thing too. He talks to him. He's like, I'm the alter ego. Like I'm here. Like it's, that's the one thing about this episode that feels a little, um, a little awkward to me is that I get where Sterling is going with it. Uh, it just feels weird to me that the voice in his head is trying to explain a concept to him that he doesn't understand, but yet his con- his subconscious understands it. That seems a little weird to me.
2: It is strange. I wasn't really quite sure where they were going with it. And I think that's one of the things that uh, just could have been fluffed up a little bit better in how this was written. But, you know, that's me being like hypercritical about something that's existed for as long as it has. And I think that you I mean, you as a viewer, you just kind of like whatever and just move past it. But you understand that he's in his own head. And you know you can see that being this type of character and like losing their 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 cool that much more because he has created this um this idea that he is the 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 one that has gotten screwed over but has nothing to do with it like you were alluding to it's like it was his fault and he was getting he was lying with the these people that were not the most savory and of course he knew that the the repercussions were there but he did it anyways. And he doesn't want to take ownership for it. So,
1: yeah, because then to take ownership would be to acknowledge that you kind of deserve where you're at now. And that's, you know, he, he's a man of pride, whether that pride is, uh, is actual, you know, like he, you know, like it's, it's revealed later. It's like, you know, you were, you were the top of your sport and this could have been good enough, but you had to push it further, you know, or it wasn't good enough for you but you know, so the alter ego, um, which also credit to Rooney that he plays both sides of, of him, like of, of this character of, of Grady, like the desperate Grady. And then this alter ego, he plays them with a different tone and inclination and line delivery. So I'll give him like, that's hard to do too. Right. And then also with the notion that, um, like he had to be acting against like someone giving him dialogue, like his own lines back to him. Right. Like, How do you do that?
2: I I don't know. I, that's, it's one of the most fascinating things about this episode and showing how diverse he was not only in this episode for what he was doing in both roles, but the fact that he was not really known for these kinds of roles either.
1: Yeah. So the, the alter ego eventually presents to me, it's like, well, here's your chance. Like, what do you want? And then, um, that's when we get into like the first, like big or like the second commercial break, where he says, you know, like, um, he says something about the fact he's like, I was a big man this time a year ago. I can be, I can be big again. And then when the ego asks him, like, what do you want? And he was like, I want to be big. And then he has this like, kind of like this, like, I don't know, Shakespearean moment of like screaming to the heavens. Right. And you hear like that big swell of music, which is what I played at the beginning of the episode. And did you notice how the camera starts like going upward again, where it's like kind of looking down on him when he says he wants to be big? Um, Actually I take that back. that was reversed. it was it moved down to shoot him upward, so he did look like when you're doing uh, bird's eye oh sorry, let me rephrase there's something called bird's eye where you're looking down. there's called something called worm's eye where you're looking up. That tilted to a worm's eye view of him, and it was subtle, but I thought that was also effective.
2: yeah, definitely, and it, it shows that um, him trying to become a little bit more empowered. So when he says that it's he's taking ownership again of his life by saying, "Hey, I want to be big. I want to be I want to be a badass again." He is taking ownership of that type of role. Like, "I want to be this person who I deserve to be."
1: Yeah. So then we get to um the commercial break come back, which I do like that uh the whole room's like dark. We hear like like we hear thunder and lightning. Uh, And the room's dark. He's asleep. And so we don't really see what happened yet. And I think that's really kind of, I think it's effective. Uh, But then the ego wakes him up. He's like, Oh, did you have a good rest? And then, uh, and then we find out that something, something's different about, uh, about Grady or the room.
2: Yeah. You can see his legs are extended off of his bed. (laughs) That's when you, you you have, you you finally have come to the realization that he is big now. And um, he Grew, what, what would you say? Like, uh, almost a foot and a half.
1: <laughs> At least I like, like whatever he says, I think I'm like six, seven foot tall. I'm like probably closer to seven foot tall. Like it's, you know, the scale. So the, he's in the set now that is like in, for practical purposes as a smaller set. So he does look bigger. And I, I adore what they did here to show this. I think that was great. Um, and I'll have a, like I'll I'll get into some notes at the end of the episode about the costs associated with what happened, but I thought this was really fun.
2: It was really cool, and I, I love this uh, type of, uh, um, filming throughout like cinema. Like one of my favorite uh, Atomic Age films is uh, The Incredible Shrinking Man, and I it's just it's pulled off so masterfully in that too. So I I I, I actually thought it was kind of fun to see this. Um, the way it was, um, filmed in this episode. Really cool.
1: Yeah. I think that, uh, Rooney and Billy Crystal should have teamed up as big buff guys after we saw Billy Crystal become a big man in that episode, dark room that we saw. That's the buddy action cop, like buddy film I need to see.
2: Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I don't know how, uh, how well they would play off of each other. But no, hey, not why not? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. But, um, so yeah, the scale change is great. Uh, and then he figures out that he's not bigger. He's like elated. And, um, so like the first thing he's like, oh, I'm a big guy now. So what am I going to do? Call my ex. Like, <laughs> it's like the most like dude thing to be. Like, oh, remember when you used to pat me on the head. Now I'm tall. Now I'm big. Um, and then she still doesn't give him the time of day. So we start to see as the viewer that like, this is a thing that he, he thinks he wants, but it doesn't change his position in the world
2: no that's that's the best way to uh put it uh he he may be a bigger person but in everybody's eyes he's still a scumbag so it's like well what's what's the difference and of course if you're trying to tell somebody on the phone because we don't have zoom back then can't you can just be like yeah i'm a tall now okay well whatever you're still you're still a jerk so i don't care
1: yeah and he calls her like an alley cat or something. It's just like, yeah, that's uh, that's gonna win her back. And he's like, I'll call twelve girls that are more attractive than her, and it'll be fine, or whatever, right? And then there's this like this bit of dialogue. I didn't get it word for word because there's a lot of dialogue. It's it's a sterling script. Tuck in. There's wonderful lines, and there's also like uh, some heavy lifting that goes on there's, there is some riches to be had. I didn't write it all down, but when the alter ego is talking to uh Grady trying to describe, describe what he is, basically you get the notion that, that it like when someone reaches the end, like the bottom of the barrel and there's the line I quoted here, I am the last gasp. This is the thing that shows up to give you the opportunity to, to do the thing that you want. And he's like, in some cases I am very good, you know? And when you, when you, when you watch that, it's like, oh, this alter ego is like laying the trap right now, straight up saying, you know, I can do this thing for you because you're desperate. Um, but it's up to you to choose how you want to wield it. Almost like a genie with a wish.
2: Yeah. And I, it definitely calls back to the whole trope of like, be careful what you wish for. But I don't, I think that it's played well in the, in the fact that Grady, doesn't see it as a wish he's just like well he's just placating him oh well what do i want i want to be big i want to be a badass you know like that's essentially what he was saying and when he wakes up and he's he's actually a bigger guy now it's like well that was unexpected like he didn't actually think that he was going to become a large guy so you know now he's jumping around like a child and everything he's he's actually like jumping on the on his floor and everything Acting really goofy. Well,
1: and there's the bit too of like, let's have a drink. And he's like, Can you feel this? And so the the ego says something creepy, like eh, I can feel it. It's like, nah, I don't like that. That was weird. But whatever. Um, so um, and th- th- also in the meantime, there's this underlying, like, there's this plot point that pops up where uh Grady's supposed to be expecting a phone call from the racing commission soon. Like, you know, he doesn't know what it's gonna be about. But so there's a bit there where something along the lines of like, you know you you asked to be bigger. He's like, that's a very like, that's like your desires are so simple. He's like, you could have asked to be heroic or to win the Kentucky Derby or something. But basically he's like, you chose literal size as opposed to like stature, you know? And I think that's an interesting way to present like, yeah, I, I could have helped you gain respect and be the person that you would hope to be in your sport but you chose just to become an actual physical, physically larger person.
2: Right. And the, the one thing that we forgot to mention prior to him getting big, just to, uh, circle the wagon a little bit more, the alter ego, um, it basically tells him like, Hey, call your buddy up, call your partner here that, you know, is supposed to be helping you out. And he, so he calls hand which uh, apparently is like a business partner or something like that. And he tells him like, Hey, I have $8, how can you help me out? And the dude hangs up on him. Yeah. So it, it, it reinforces the idea that, um, like if, if he's not talking to the alter ego, who is he actually going to seek help from?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And it's like, basically the ego is like kind of taunting him of like, you know, where, where are you going to go? Like, and he's also kind of acknowledging it's like, you got used and you went along with it. Cause it worked for a while. Now it doesn't, you know? And, but yeah. Um, and the episode could have ended there. Like in terms of like, oh, you're you're going to get yours, but it goes a couple steps further that I think I think work to the episode's advantage because it actually ends up a lot more desperate and sad than it it probably could have. But I like that it went one step further and got way darker.
2: Yeah, so um, you know he gets this call back from the racing commission, and he's elated to find out that he um, he's actually getting. The, uh, the suspension taken off and he's he's going to be able to race again but that's when all of a sudden like the lightning flashes after he gets off the phone and the 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 alter ego explains to him like essentially how high are you gonna ride you know you're huge and he he actually becomes larger at this point too so the room is like it's a, it's a i think they did a good shot um to make this room even smaller and to scale, like all the things down even more. But I just thought, I thought it was kind of funny to see him just so tall now that he's almost touching the ceiling with yeah. his head.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is kind of funny, but it's like that, like I, um, the, the way the story went there where it's like, Oh, not only are you screwed like where you were now, you're even bigger. So, Good luck. You wanted to be the biggest, which is what you asked for, you know? And, and then with, with Rooney, he's like, he, like, he starts like freaking out, uh, like understandably so. Um, and he starts like just tearing apart this tiny room. Sorry, this regular sized room. Now that he's big, let's, let's keep uh let's keep perspective here. No pun intended. Sorry. Intended. Um, and then he's like tearing apart the room and he's on his knees and you just like, you know, um, Yeah, he's basically being like, no, no, no. He's like, make me small, make me small. And it's like, you are small. And it is like, that's devastating. And then the camera does the bird's eye view again to where even though the room is smaller, we're still, we're we're looking down on him again. And that's a really, that's a really effective way to end the episode. Yeah, it was,
2: it was, it was good. um, And the fact that it's like, we understand that for all of the all of the things that he was complaining about, he kind of had control of his destiny if he just would have taken a step back. And now, as a, a viewer, you're taking a step back from him and seeing how ruined his life is now.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's pretty much your episode. Uh, the last night of a jockey, he ends up becoming, um, you know, a Goliath or whatever. But, uh, yeah. So, you you said at the beginning of this episode, like let's rip this bandaid off and get into it. Um, what are your, what are your thoughts about it? Uh, See, I'm,
2: I don't know. Like the fact
1: that it was,
2: it was the one man band kind of thing. I wasn't too excited to be watching an episode like that, but Rooney, he does it really well. Like he, it wasn't, it wasn't a problem with his ability in this episode. Like he actually did a fantastic job. It just, for me, it didn't seem like there was enough substance there. And the majority of the time when I watch a film or shows or anything like that, I don't like one set. Like I don't want to be in one room, the entire episode, the entire show. It just doesn't, it's not too effective for me as a viewer. I, I, I lose interest pretty easily when it comes to something like that.
1: I mean, that's fair. So I, I will say, um, I, whenever, um, I had the idea for this show percolating in my head, um, I had watched a couple episodes just to kind of see like thoughts or like how I was feeling about it. And this is one of the ones I watched like originally. Um, and, I you know, I thought it was interesting at the time. I thought like the like the the hook of it when you get to him actually being big. I thought that was pretty cool. So it was hard for me to come into this one with like a fresh mindset because I had seen it previously. Um, is it you know is it one of my favorite episodes? It's not. Can I respect his performance in this? Absolutely. Um, it is easy to say that this episode is very similar to a season two episode uh, called "A Nervous Man in a Four Dollar Room." Uh, that Sterling also wrote. It was almost a one-man show, uh, where a guy uh, is being pressured to um, have some money or go out and then shoot an old man to to get the money back to like a piece of bookie. Uh, where he has a guy, uh, his his his, his um, other self talking to him through a mirror. Um, the shows are pretty pretty similar in what happens. So to say that like I already. I've already seen this type of take Um, you know, that would be fair. The direction with uh, this is somebody torturing themselves, even though they're aware of what they did to get them here. I thought that was a different enough. Um, And also I guess I'll never be upset with a, a different attempt at presentation for an episode like this. This is taking some chances and I know you—you you said you lost, you would lose interest in something like this over time. Um, this is not your typical episode of The Twilight Zone. This—this this took some risks.
2: And I'm glad that they—they—they they, they did that because without those risks, I think this one would really fell on its face. I mean, there there is quite a bit here to dig, uh, and especially in our our conversation. Now, I I have a a little bit better view uh, of of the episode itself, but. It's still, you know, it's still one of those things that what was here wasn't typically what I would gravitate towards. And I've seen plenty of of the whole, like, careful what you wish for tropes um, in other episodes that I felt was a little bit better.
1: No, it's fair. I I agree. I agree with that completely. And we've, we've covered that stuff before. And well, that's a trope we'll see again and again. And somebody's own. Inability to acknowledge their own fallacy is going to be their undoing. And we'll see that again too. And that's, I think that's part of the fabric of the twilight zone. So I'll give you that. Um, so, um, do you have any other notes about the episode? Because I want to get into the costs of the sets and then Sterling's own kind of take on this episode.
2: Well, I do want to, um, see if there's any parallel that you can draw between this idea of this guy all basically going stir crazy and name Grady and the possibility that it has any connection with, uh, the shining.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, you know, King grew up watching the twilight zone, right? So maybe it wouldn't surprise me if that, that the name pops up because of this.
2: Yeah. I mean, I just recently finished the book and I can see maybe some of the groundwork that would have been laid from this episode and what King uh, would, have would, possibly use for the, the the inspiration of the book so, yeah i don't no, know that, i that, that's maybe fair. i'm reaching too far but
1: no i don't think you're reaching too far because i mean for goodness sakes like you know this is this is stuff he grew up watching so who knows right what inspired what
2: yeah it just and in the fact that you know the, the character's name is grady it's like huh maybe i maybe. don't know
1: yeah. <laughs> so um oh yeah so uh anything else before we get into me nope. me sounding smart again, okay. Um, so we clearly know from this episode there's three sets. I'm going to ask you um, with the three sets that were being built, like you know the regular size, the mid size, and the smaller size. Um, it, what do you think was the most expensive of the three? I feel like the the one at the end of the
2: episode that's supposed to be the smallest
1: right you would think that right so the first bedroom cost a total of three hundred dollars um with the rental of furniture and props the second bedroom cost one thousand dollars since much of the furniture had to be custom built the third and final bedroom cost six hundred dollars <laughs> i don't know why the middle one uh cost more i don't know i don't know why that was but whatever it is what it is hmm. yeah that's kind of
2: that's kind of interesting i I do like that there was kind of a blooper in in that last scene where he's uh trashing the room. When he throws the um the dresser, you can see that it's just hollowed out in the back it.
1: The- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> you know yeah, it's yeah, you're right. Um so uh they're like, Hey Mickey, can you just bring some actual things from your home? No, I'm I'm kidding. That's terrible. All right. So uh, in regards to this episode versus other things Sterling has written. So here's the, here's a quote. Uh, here's the, I, I've been using, again, I've talked about this, this last time, the twilight zone, unlocking the door to a television classic by Martin Graham's jr. Amazing resource, highly recommended. Um, considered by many of fans as a remake of a nervous man in a $4 room. Uh, this episode was an excellent, um, example of what Sterling meant when he told a reporter a year previous, um, Sometimes I think we have tried everything and there is the danger now that I will be an imitation of myself. Uh, Even though critics argued that Serling's um, production line had consistently remained high and imaginative, he found himself tiring uh, from the chores demanded of him before the show. I would tackle writing jobs in a leisurely way. Now, if I spend more than five days working on a twilight show, it goes out the window.
2: Huh. I wonder why he would think that um, putting that much work into an episode wouldn't uh, like fare well.
1: Well, no, I think he would, I think he's saying that it, it did fare well, but now he has been so pushed and burnt out that if he spends more than a few days on it, he just tosses it and is like done with it. So he would rather churn and burn at this point than to take the time like he did in the first two, two or three seasons um, you're, you're just seeing a man a man that's at the end of his rope because the contract he signed to get this, this show on, on the air was a much larger commitment than he probably expected. And just the creative and mental toll was hitting him.
2: That's understandable when you put it in that kind of context. And, you know, he being the family man now more established than he was, um, in earlier seasons, uh, probably would have some kind of a uh, pressure to it as well
1: yeah the, the, i would kind of equate it to this is not the same thing but like uh whenever black mirror releases new episodes if charlie booker's not writing it everyone's like well why is he not writing it it's like how do he, how does he have to be the one responsible for every single script of the show that he oversaw when you can bring other people in but people won't give black mirror the same like fair shake unless booker's the one writing it I think it's Charlie Booker's or Charlie Brooker. I'll look it up. I know you've not seen a lot of black mirror, but he's the one who's written the bulk of the episodes and the expectations always high. When you write something, you know, I could see that being very similar.
2: Yeah. And it's completely unfair because we've had, um, like really good writers get a shot. Sorry. Charlie do- Brooker.
1: I'm sorry. I, I mispronounced his name. Sorry. Go ahead. Continue. That's okay. You, you,
2: when you give, uh, like a good story, uh, the, the chance, the time of day, it doesn't matter who wrote it as long as uh, you know, it's a good product and you put it out there and maybe you're going to see the, the evolution of the, of this person coming up in the ranks. And I just, I think it's a, it's completely unfair to the, to the, the show and you know, whoever is a uh, piloting it.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and also to tie it back into, um, the current, um, iteration of the twilight zone on, on CBS, uh, all access or whatever it's called now, uh, Jordan Peel's only written one episode of the two seasons, right? He's producer and he's like, you know, the 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 face of it. But I think he also understands, well, A, he wants more diversity. But B, it's like you, you know, you only have so much in the tank. And then you start coming up with like weird things and, and things that aren't like they're half baked. And I think we as creative people, and I'm not putting myself in the same, <laughs> I, I am not in the same uh, you know, like boat as Jordan Peel, because I I'm not nearly that creative, but any, anytime you create something, you you sometimes will hit a wall of like, can I do any more of this? And if there's a clock ticking and there's an expectation, um, the quality can suffer because you're just trying to meet a deadline. And I think this episode was still well written. Um, I think that Serling, the Serling's biggest critic is Serling. Uh, and I think if somebody had not seen a nervous man in a $4 room and this is the first, like the first iteration they'd seen of this they're probably gonna come away with a more favorable.
2: And uh, that's fair as well. I mean, again, it, I don't want to be harping on the episode for anything that it's lacking more than just like my own, I guess my own, uh, interest in what I, I took away from it. So I think, uh, uh Mr. Rooney did a, a phenomenal job of doing the, the double duty of being the crazy manic dude and been being, the alter ego. So I, there's a lot to take away from this episode for sure.
1: Yeah. The performance is great. Um, you know, it kind of makes you look at him a little differently. Um, I think it ends on a dagger that is well intended. Um, and, and well, well earned because much like versus like last week where we were never going to like McNulty. I don't think we ever liked Grady, but we could be sympathetic to a man at his end a little bit more, you know, um, not by much, but a little bit more. Uh, But yeah, I, I don't know. I just, again, this isn't going to be one of my favorites, but I think this is one of those ones that I think it's worthy of, um, you know, bringing into the conversation for um, attempting something different. And as much as Sterling probably didn't want to, like, as much as he probably felt that it wasn't his best outing, it's like, it's still really good. I mean, it's not, it's not like this, this isn't a season four episode. (laughs) I'll say that.
2: Yeah, and that's it's that's it, okay, you know. It's, <laughs> it's okay. It, it's okay to not to not be like the the best thing ever every single time. So right. it was something different. It was a kind of a palate cleanse from other episodes that we've seen. So it's it's fine. It it exists. Just yeah, for me.
1: All right. So uh, as we do here on the show, um, we're gonna we're gonna rate a twist, and then we'll talk about what we're doing next. So here comes that twist. Uh, that the episode is called the last night of a jockey and we would literally see him never being a jockey again. Um, oh one, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what else to put it. Like that he would be, uh, undone by his own, uh, his own being like a jerk about being a jockey.
2: Yeah. I think it, for me, the, the twist being that this voice was going to lead him down a path that he was going to eventually not be happy with the outcome. I give that a one because that's what I felt like the entire time. It's like, okay, well, he's hearing this voice. What the hell is a voice going to do? But other than just screw him over somehow, even if it is by his own hand.
1: Yeah, that's fair. So, yeah, that's going to do it for our discussion about the last night of a jockey. Uh, you guys can tell us your thoughts and feelings on our Facebook page at Strange Highways there. Um, like, I, again, I'll be posting photos from from this week. Um, you know, it's going to be a lot of Mickey Rooney. So just heads up there. Uh, you guys can, uh, email us directly at strange highways podcast. Uh, you know, wherever you find, find your podcast rate and review us to be greatly appreciated. And Terry, what other social medias are, where are we doing right now?
2: Okay. So some people are not big in the Facebook so much these dates, but we are on Instagram as well. So we're posting pictures weekly. Uh, I'm probably suffering a little bit from, you know, fatigue on you know, 2020. So I, I do need to get on there a little bit more often and post more pictures, but yeah, so you can find us on Instagram at strange highways podcast.
1: Perfect. All right. So next week, episode. next week, <clears throat> next week's episode. Uh, it's one of the ones that, um, people hold up as like, you know, like a pinnacle episode. Uh, it's what I've never seen before. It is living doll. Um, and, Uh, this is uh, it's going to be it's going to be a weird one it's going to be a living doll so spoilers there let Serling tease it Um, I like one of his words he uses Um, I'll play it and then I'll 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 talk about that word
0: and now Mr. Serling next on Twilight Zone a show that might very aptly be called The Living End and with comparable aptness is called Living Doll it's written by colleague and cohort Charles Beaumont and stars Tully Savalas and co-stars Mary LaRoche Mr. Beaumont supplies us with a little weirdy involving a man and a doll. It comes. Well recommended next time out living doll.
1: It's a weirdy. I, I don't even know what that is, but I love that word. Hmm. We're, so we're getting Kojak in this episode. We're getting Kojak and we're getting, a, yeah. we're getting Kojak and a real doll. That's not what's happening, but like, <laughs> yeah, like um, we're getting, I think this is the talking Tina episode. Uh, yeah. So, um, I've never seen this one before. I just know that this is one people do reference when they talk about the twilight zone.
2: Yeah. I'm actually pretty excited for this episode. Uh, yeah. It's one of the the mainstays for, uh, when people talk about twilight zone and it's pretty, uh, highly ranked. So this should be a fun discussion.
1: Yes. So that's going to do it for us this week. Have a safe week. Uh, be careful out there. You know, the, the world's getting weirder and weirder. It's getting, it's getting a bit of a weirdy. It's getting a bit of weirdy out there. Um, yeah. And, um, I don't know. Uh, I got nothing. Like if, if the voice in your head keeps asking you what you want, um, maybe just ask for like, um, job advancement as opposed to getting physically bigger. That's all, that's all I got.
2: Uh, and make sure you don't bust up all your furniture.
0: You drink? Go right ahead. Be my guest. Yeah. (laughs) Here's mud in your eye. Yeah, too bad you can't enjoy this with me. (laughs) I'm joining you. I'm joining you. Believe me, I'm feeling the hot little ripples just as you do.